There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10 Ranch We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, I I know a lot of you are listening right now. We're listening Tuesday night, and I just want to thank everyone, all the new subscribers, all the people that joined us. Um, Tuesday night's show was the very biggest audience we've ever had on Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. It's approaching 90,000 views in, in just two and a half days. And I, if to say I'm excited about it, it, it would be putting it so mildly. And I just want to thank all of you guys that joined in, all the new folks that uh, have subscribed uh, to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I want to thank all of you. And, uh, you know, if you really like um, real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, we have really great guests on here. And we try to use our investigative experience, our police work, some of the folks we bring on, our attorneys. And we try to really give you the story from how it should or would be investigated. Do we sometimes make mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone makes mistakes, but we pretty much have it right most of the time. So again, I just want to thank all you new subscribers, all you new people joining uh, Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And I just want to give you guys a thumbs up. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everyone. Tonight, we have a fantastic co-host, a great guest who has just, in her second or third podcast, has just like hit the ground running. She just, she needed no time to assimilate into this. She just hit the ground running in this. And that's probably because she's also an actress, actress, attorney, and mother of five. Welcome to the show. Melanie Little. How you doing, Melanie? I'm great. Top of the evening to you, Bill, on this same. That's Patty's right, day. folks. We want to wish everyone also a, a happy St. Patty's Day. Uh, it's um, I happen to be of Irish descent and uh, people may think it's blasphemous for me to go on the air on St. Patty's Day. But I think it's important uh, to follow this up, to follow up that uh, that great show we did on Tuesday with another show. And Melanie was available. So I said, you know something, there's no place I would rather be. Welcome, Melanie. Uh, thanks, Bill. Maybe you could sing for us a little later. <laughs> I don't know. Danny I don't know. boy, a little. I, I don't know if this is the audience for it, but <laughs> you know, Melanie, I wanted to mention we had uh, we had mentioned that um, Stephen Smith. Some folks were getting a little upset that oh, um, you know, Stephen Smith. How do you know? How are you blaming anyone? I, how are you blaming Buster Murdoch? We're not blaming anyone. We're just reporting what's been reported. And we're not, we don't have access to the case folder. And this investigation goes back to 2005. What we do know, even without having been there, what we do know is that this investigation was mishandled right from the beginning. And what do we do? We question why. Why was it mishandled? Is there some egregious reason? Is there some corruption involved here? And we have to say, it appears, yes, that it is. So the body of Stephen Smith, again, who died mysteriously 
just a few miles from the infamous Murdoch family's home, is set to be exhumed, his family said Friday. Stephen Smith's family announced Thursday they will exhume his body for an independent autopsy after his July 8th, 2015 death. It received renewed attention after the Alex Murdoch trial. Stephen Smith's family announced that they will exhume his body for an independent autopsy. Now, an independent autopsy isn't called for because the family believes that this was a good investigation and there was no bias and there was no rush to judgment. They believe all of those things. Melanie, your thoughts? My thoughts are that Sandy Smith is a rock star. I mean, this woman did not quit. Yeah, he did die in 2015. I think originally you said uh, 2005, but it was 2015. Oh, it's 2015. He's I'm been sorry, hanging yeah. out there for seven, eight years. And um, what I'm curious about is that she started to go fund me for this exhumation process. And I'm wondering why it's on her to pay for the body to be exhumed. If their case is reopened, why wouldn't law enforcement pay for that? In any event, the, the GoFundMe that she started just a couple of days ago, raised over $40,000. And she announced yesterday that she, they were going to exhume the body. So it's good news. Hopefully they're going to find out whoever did this to him. You know, Melanie, I question that too. Why isn't the state, if this was a mishandled investigation, if there was potentially corruption, if there was not a proper investigation done by the authorities, then why is private funds being used to A, to exhume the body and B, for a, an autopsy? Did they even perform an autopsy originally? I mean, they did perform an autopsy. Yes, they did. In fact, the autopsy was signed off on within by 1230 in the afternoon, the morning his body was found. His body was found around 4 a.m. The medical examiner at the um, medical school at the University of South Carolina signed off on that at 1230. So it was very quick. It was done very quick. But yeah, and you know we talked people, about this the other day, how there was a discrepancy in what uh, the coroner and the medical examiner thought the cause of death was. Yeah, which was really disturbing because the the coroner went to the scene, and we've spoken about the coroner system in this country before. Mm -hmm. How we don't think it's a good system that the whole system nationally should be a medical examiner system and not a coroner who is an elected position, uh, a pathologist, a medical examiner is an MD and has all the credentials. A coroner is just an elected official that could be a politician. And it doesn't give me great pause. It does give me great, great pause to realize someone that's never investigated death or has no medical background is gonna make judgments. But any, in, in any event, in this case, the coroner went to the scene and totally disagreed that it was a vehicle accident. And it seemed that the pathologist called it a vehicle accident without ever having spoken to the investigators. Interesting. The coroner in this case um, had something like 28 years of funeral home experience. His family owned a funeral home. So that was his background for this position. And I think at one point he was also an EMT. And then interestingly, also, he resigned in 2019. Uh, I don't know if he was the coroner during the Mallory Beach case, but that was in 2019. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff with this case that 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 I don't like. Um, one of the things that I've noted, a lot of people have been asking me in the chat is that there were blue paint chips on him. Now, that could have been from a baseball bat. That's what they keep insisting. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a paint expert, but I think that the paint from a motor vehicle is a hell of a lot different than the paint from a baseball bat. 
So the investigators must know the answer to that. You know, I'm thinking that if they reopen this case and they still have the evidence that they're going to make that determination if it wasn't made at the time, which is also a little concerning. But you can absolutely discern between car paint, automobile paint, uh, down to the make and model of the car based on the color of the paint. Absolutely. And, you You know, know, that's what... Ahead, paint that may have come off an aluminum bat, which you know a lot of people in the chat were were saying because the the theory that we were or the rumor uh, was that some kids were coming home from a baseball tournament at the time, and Buster may have been in the car. You know what's interesting about this too, and and the connection to the Murdoch family is that Buster Murdoch went to high school with uh, Stephen Smith, and also. Alec Murdoch coached their baseball team when they were kids. They played on the same baseball team. So it wasn't like they were at all strangers. They knew each other. I'm not saying they were friends, they but were they friends. knew each other. They were yeah, well, Stephen yeah. helped him. He tutored him or he helped him in school. And Stephen Smith was Mallory Beach's good friend as well. So you want to talk about a tangled web here. I mean, you know, something I keep thinking of that, you know, what do they say? Uh, out of the mouth of babes, off time come gems. Well, mm-hmm. out of the mouth of criminals too, off time come gems. Because that what a tangled web we weave was a quote from Alex Murdoch right in the very courtroom that found mm-hmm. him guilty of a double murder and sentenced him to, to life in prison, two life terms in prison. Mm-hmm. That he was quoted as saying that. He did say that. Yeah. So it, it, it's really it crazy. But when you think about this case now, it goes back to 2005, uh, excuse me, 2015. 2015. I don't know why I'm obsessed with 2005. (laughs) It goes back to 2015. His cell phone, was that forensically gone through? Was there a search warrant? Did they save the information in his cell phone? What calls did he make? Did it show pings on his cell phone? That is... yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Melanie. There was some information that in the chat because your viewers know probably a lot more about this case than we do. They know pretty much every single detail that Randy Murdoch or someone in his behalf actually went to the house and collected the cell phone and took it. I mean, there's a lot of buzz about that. If somebody in the chat knows the answer to that, I think that's what happened. And I think the cell phone is no longer. And they may have taken his computer as well. You know, that's when we say what a tangled web we weave. That is very scary because, and we'll, we'll get into more of the, the potential corruption from this family later on it's in a civil case or several civil cases. But it, when the law firm and the lawyers in a law firm are corrupt and taking shortcuts and stealing money and doing this and that, they're being enabled by other bodies within that town within hampton county the courts you know the banks the bankers the bankers the how about even the insurance companies they're seeing them all the time because their personal injury they're suing them all the time so yeah did they get maybe friendly with the insurance companies too you know, insurance companies don't like to give away money. They're, they're going to hang on to their money uh, for as long as they can. Uh, the problem with Hampton County is that it's, it's known as one of the most generous counties with regard to uh, jury verdicts in, in the entire country. So uh, it's a plaintiff's 
dream and it's a defendant's nightmare. So defendants or insurance companies will do anything they can to get cases moved out of Hampton County and plaintiffs who are the people who bring lawsuits will do anything to be in Hampton County. Very similar to if you're in New York, typically cases uh, you'd want to bring a case in the Bronx because the Bronx is a very generous county. And, you know, is it because the Murdoch family was in Hampton County with their big law firm for over 100 years? I don't know. Interesting. You know, Melanie, you hit it on the head in New York City, uh, right? All attorneys trying personal injuries, they want the case moved to the Bronx. First of all, Bronx juries hate the man. They hate the powers that be. Most of the people that get called for the jury, juries in the Bronx are, you know, at the lower level of the economic spectrum, and they don't specifically like, you know, people in power. So when some person sues, either the government or a business or some kind of entity, Bronx juries are known for giving the largest awards. And you're 100% correct. And it sounds Hampton County... Uh, in South Carolina, Hampton County was known as the third worst county for an insurance company because mm -hmm. of what you just said. Yeah, mm -hmm. they labeled it a judicial hellhole. Yeah. In 2006, a report in the South Carolina Law Review characterized the county this way. Hampton County is notorious throughout South Carolina and the nation for its plaintiff-friendly jurors and excessive verdicts. So it says, predictably, plaintiffs frequently search for any potential justification to file their complaint in Hampton County courts. So it, it, with that known, it was also um, for the Murdochs, they, they wanted to keep their cases in Hampton County. Sure. Because and they it often was like, lied about, uh, about a plaintiff's residence being in Hampton County to get the case in Hampton County when the, the plaintiff didn't actually live in, in Hampton County. So how this went on for so many years, and maybe you're thinking of 2005 because they were, I think, the thefts go back at least that far that we can trace, right? That he was stealing from his clients yeah, in absolutely. 2005. But, you know, Melanie, you would expect a checks and balance system that would check the law firm or the lawyers mm -hmm. that are doing corrupt things, that there's someone would catch them like a judge or the clerk of the court would catch the paperwork that was corrupt and not signed, not submitted properly, or someone would check on some of the th claims that they made. For example, uh, well, we'll get into that later mm -hmm. about... Um, or even the insurance companies during their, their investigation. You know, every uh, defendant in a lawsuit is typically insured by a carrier and they do their own investigation. And, you know, they, like I said, they like to hold on to their money. They don't want to pay so easily. Anybody who's ever been involved in any sort of injury lawsuit knows that it takes forever because they don't want to pay. So they do everything they can to investigate the case. And you would think that maybe the residence of the plaintiff would be one of the top things they would investigate. But this went on for a long time. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. And when, when you have such power within a county, within a town, you know, you also uh, potentially own the banks, too. And, and that's a scary thing because they had allies. I just want to play a little bit. You know, we're going to connect all of this. This judge in the case uh, that sentenced Alec Murdoch, I really think he was he was really one hell of a judge. And I, he didn't get flustered. He kept his cool the whole time. He made his rulings and 
he seemed very confident. Now, it, it was amazing to me that two days, two days after Alec Murdoch was convicted to life in prison, his lawyers submitted the appeal. Like, are you kidding me? Oh, like, they already had it drafted. I mean, it's a piece of paper. They don't even have to state the grounds for the appeal. I mean, it's done in every single case. But so they're, they're appealing the verdict and they're appealing the sentence. And it's literally like one piece of paper. You file it, you pay a fee, done. It's going to take forever for it to be decided. Right. Because Didn't they're going to have to- Didn't you say that less than 1% of appeals actually win? I don't know the exact statistics on that. But I will tell you that they are going to have to get the trial transcripts, which 28 days of testimony, it's going to be thousands and thousands of pages. Um, and they're going to have to go through with a fine tooth comb all of the testimony, you know, to figure out what their grounds are going to be and file briefs. And it's going to take at least 18 months, probably, for an appeal to be decided in this case. You know what I think the main and not being a lawyer and you can agree or disagree with me, but I think the main grounds that at least his defense attorneys will claim is that the civil part of this should have never been allowed into the trial because that prejudiced the jury against him. And in essence, that may have uh, implored him to testify. I think that's where they're going to go with it. Your thoughts? I think there are, it's a two prong thing. I think uh, number one, they're going to say that the evidence of the financial crimes should not have been allowed during the trial. The judge allowed them in for the limited purpose of motive. And I think that the defense will argue that they didn't consider it with regard to motive. They considered it um, to say that he was a bad guy. He stole all his money. So therefore, because they thought this, he thought this was going to come out, therefore he killed his wife and son. And I think the second prong to the appeal is going to be the jury only took 45 minutes to come to a decision. Therefore, they couldn't possibly have gone through all the evidence and the verdict should be overturned. I don't think either one of them is going to be successful. Because based on all of the interviews that we've seen with the jurors on television, they were hanging on that Snapchat video and the fact that he lied about being at the scene. And that's what convicted him, in my opinion. I don't think the financial crimes really played into it. But we'll see what happens. I think you're right. Let me play a little bit of this judge. The death penalty. Probably for lesser conduct. Remind me of the expression you uh, gave on the witness stand. Was it tangled? Tangled up, weave. Uh, uh, oh, what tangled web we weave. What did you mean by that? Meant when I lied, I continue to lie. And the question is, when will it end? When will it end? And it, it's ended already for the jury because they've concluded that you continue to lie and lie throughout your testimony. And perhaps with all the throng of people here, they, for the most part, all believe or 80, 90%, 99% believe that you continue to lie now when you, your statement of denial uh, to the court. 
perhaps you believe that it's, it does not matter, uh, that there's nothing that can mitigate a sentence given the crime, crimes that were committed. You know, a notice of alibi was filed in this case by counsel in November, and we conducted a hearing, pretrial hearing, in which you claimed to have been someplace else at the time the crime was committed. Then, after all of the witnesses placed you at the scene of the crime, at the last minute, or last minutes or days, you you, you, you switch courses and admit it to being there. And then that necessitated more lies and continued to lie. And um, and I said, where will it end? It's already ended for many who have heard you and uh, concluded that it'll never end. But within your own soul, you have to deal with that. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. All day and every night. Yeah, I'm sure. And they will continue to do so. And, and reflect on the last time they looked you in the eyes as you looked the jury in the eyes. Um, you know, Melanie, I just want to say something there. I mean, it's it's so much to think about right there, what the judge said. As he said, I'm, I'm sure you're going to see Maggie and Paul every night before you go to bed. They're going to be in your mind. And there he readily admits to it, but he's not admitting that he's the person that killed them. You know what I mean? So it's such lunacy. And I just want to make another point that what a tangled web we weave to me. And I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not a psychologist either, but that's psychology 101. That was a Freudian slip. That was almost an admission of guilt right there. Well, finish the quote. What a tangled web we weave when we first when first we practice to deceive. That was written by Sir Walter Scott in 1808. I thought it was Shakespeare, so I looked it up. But it was uh, Sir Walter Scott, 1808, from a play that he wrote. And it's a famous quote. So, yeah, he intended to deceive everybody. And the judge is saying, look, these two are going to haunt you in your nightmares for the rest of your life. And where are his tears now? Alec Murdoch isn't crying. Cried a lot on the stand. He's not crying now. A little odd, wouldn't you say? And, you, yeah, and you I know what I like the most about that clip is the court officer behind him nodding yeah, as, as yeah. the judge is saying all this time. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. That court officer definitely couldn't keep a tears. poker face. No. No. You're right. The, it, his Really, the tears were, were just what he used to try to get sympathy from the jury. Sure, along and, with his alleged drug addiction that yes. there's not really any evidence of. Yeah, you know? no, I, I mean, I just think it's it's amazing as the judge in a very cool, calm, collected way is dressing him down. Mm -hmm. And he's just standing there like, 
you know, yeah, like o, like O.J. Simpson, we got to find the people that did this, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we got to find the person that did this. Right, but never once did he say that, that I'm aware of. Never no. once does he say to law enforcement when he's being questioned the night of the murders, you got to go find out who did this. You got to go out there and find the guys. No. He's talking about all kinds of other things, but never once did he say that. No. Let's get the judge back. I don't know um person who's always been such a gregarious, friendly person. Uh, and caused her life to be tangled in such a weave web, uh, such a situation that you, um, yours have spun into. Uh, and it's so unfortunate because you had such a lovely family of such friendly people, including you. And to go from that to this. You know, your license to practice law has been stripped away from you. you turned from lawyer to witness. And, and now uh, have an opportunity to make your final appeal uh, as, a, as an ex-lawyer. And it's almost, uh, it's really surprising that you're waiving this right at this time. And if you opt to do so, it, it's on you. I, you're not compelled to say anything, but you have the opportunity to do so. And I tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son, Paul Paul. Well, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. Um, I've seen that before person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it's the same individual. Um, we'll leave that at that. Before announcing sentence on these cases, with regard to all of the other pending cases, are any of them here in Colleton, or I'm sure some of them are? Yes, sir. Half of them, or? I, I don't have that in front of me, but there are a substantial number of charges here. There's some in Hampton, Arnsburg, Newport, uh, Allendale. Um, there may be others that I'm not thinking of right now. We might have worn out our welcome here in Colleton. Um, They have been, and I'll take this opportunity to thank Sheriff Hill and um, all of the court officials and, and really everyone I've met and, and dealt with while here in Colleton County, just been great. But without any delay, we're gonna schedule some of the other matters. I know Mr. Harpootlian's 
scheduling is complicated and you sacrifice quite a bit to be able to hear, be here um, defending uh, Mr. Murdoch, as well as the Attorney General's office uh, with all the other many, many things and obligations you have. And to be able to have the Attorney General here, um, Alan Wilson, for the period of time that he's uh, devoted to being here along with everyone else, it's, it's, it's been uh, quite a sacrifice. Uh, but there are other victims Well, Melanie, I just want to um, ask a few things of you, uh, bring your expertise in here. From the point of view of, uh, of the defense, how huge of a mistake was it for him to testify? In my opinion, I never would have let that guy on the stand because it, it, in order for him to testify, he had to admit to all of those other crimes and he had to admit that that was him in the kennel video and in the Snapchat video. And that's what sunk him. I don't know if they wanted him to testify. He may have insisted. He's an attorney. Uh, he thought that he could get up there and he could talk himself out of it. Like he's been talking himself out of everything for 20, 30 years. Um, is this something that's, you know, is it going to be grounds for an appeal that now he's going to turn around and say, my, my counsel was, uh, ineffective i had ineffective counsel or incompetent counsel and therefore they they should never have let me testify and maybe that'll be grounds for an appeal i don't know but you know it's important to point out that one of his defense attorneys dick harpulian is a, is a senator in south carolina i'm sure that he thought that that was going to somehow benefit him with the jury oh you know a state senator never would represent me if i was if i really did this interesting very interesting. This is uh, a couple of the jurors. I want to play a little bit of what they said. Convicted killer Alex Murdoch took the witness stand. He had one big job to do, explain away that video, which proved he'd been lying about being at the scene of his wife and his son's murders moments before the killing. Now jurors are talking about the trial and Les Trent reports they say it's that video that sealed his fate. Turns out Bubba the dog is one great dog detective. That's the word today after three Alex Murdoch jurors appeared on the Today Show and told how the kennel video that placed Alec Murdoch at the crime scene sealed his fate. He's got burgers now! Murdoch can be heard yelling at Bubba, the family's yellow lab. Bubba's at the kennels, but you don't see him in the video. The dog you see is a chocolate lab the Murdochs were looking after. The kennel video, that just kind of sealed the deal. The kennel video definitely played a major part. In closing arguments at the double murder trial, prosecutor John Metters put it this way. Thank God for Bubba. Bubba is now being cared for by the Murdoch's former housekeeper. The jurors were also asked what they thought of Murdoch's decision to testify. I think that he believes that he's so convincing that he felt like that was his you know, last resort. This new mugshot of Murdoch with a shaven head shows his shocking transformation into a state prisoner. Murdoch was moved from this jail to a Department of Corrections Evaluation Center nearby. Officials tell Inside Edition he'll undergo medical tests and a mental health assessment. That whole process should take about 45 days, after which Murdoch will be sent to a maximum security prison. 
Amazing. You know, they I know Duty Ron did a show last night about how is he going to basically um, survive in prison. And I believe he's going to thrive in prison. I really do. Because and I'm hear me out. I know mm -hmm. you're shaking your head. No, no, no. I but think I'm agreeing with you. I think he's he's a scam artist. He's a criminal, just like mm -hmm. the other criminals in prison. And the other criminals, rather than having disdain for him, they're going to reach out to him to help them, mm -hmm. to help them with their legal matters. Sure, if they right. got a problem with the prison, they're going to say, file a lawsuit. Tell and he's going to, mm -hmm. yeah. And he's going to just be shine in that environment where everyone's going to be like, oh, that's Murdoch. That's Murdoch. And so all of these, uh, I've seen a, a lot of talking heads on different channels saying, oh, he's going to have a hard time in prison. No, he's not. He is not because He's an attorney and, you know, he can get other lifers to protect him if that's going to be a problem because mm. he's got something to sell. And believe me, before you know it, he's going to run the prison because he's such a scam artist. Yeah, I mean, I think you could be right. I think they're, are they keeping him in solitary right now? I didn't, I wasn't able to watch Ron's show last night, but uh, he's in some sort of maximum security. Is he in solitary? I'm not sure. Well, no. Well, supposedly he's going to be in protective custody. But if mm -hmm. they look how that worked out for Epstein. Yeah, exactly. And it's if they figure out day. that maybe maybe he doesn't need to be in protective custody, they'll pull him out of there and he'll just be a regular prison inmate. Mm -hmm. Let me just make a quick announcement, Melanie. Folks, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. I want to thank all the new people that have joined this channel and become members. And uh, we really appreciate your support. And we won't disappoint you as presenting real crime from a police perspective. And if you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with Canem, five different levels. And you see the folks with the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family, and we so appreciate everything they do for us, including interacting with us in the chats, which we really appreciate also. So again, I want to just thank everyone who is new to this channel, and uh, we will not disappoint you, trust me. Melanie, it's like, you know, we always have to go back to, you know, what were the big, big mistakes in this case? What was the, and obviously we just played that. Two out, two out of the three or three out of the three jurors said that kennel video was mm -hmm. just a slam dunk. It just, you know, and that we explained, you can explain to our audience. He lied. He was interviewed by the police right after the murders. And he lied about not being there right. until like 10 o'clock at night. Right. And his defense was given this video in the discovery process. You want to explain that, Melanie? Sure. Uh, the murders of Maggie and Paul took place at the kennels, which was um, some distance away from the house. I think maybe like a 30 second or a minute drive from the main house to the kennels where they kept their dogs. And there were some other outbuildings over there. This was a 1700 acre property. So it was a really big property. Um, Maggie and Paul were shot at the kennels. And when Alec called 911 and afterwards for a year, he maintained that he had never been at the kennels that night, that he fell asleep on the couch 
in, in his house, that he went to visit his mom, and he crafted his alibi very, very carefully. It took about a year, I think, for them to unlock Paul's phone. Paul is the, the son that was killed. And when they unlocked Paul's phone, they discovered two things. One was a Snapchat video that he was going to send to his friend that was never delivered because his phone went dead right before the Snapchat was about to be delivered. The Snapchat was a picture of Alec by a tree wearing khakis and a light blue polo shirt. Important because both of those, that entire outfit disappeared. The second video was a video of a dog that uh, Paul was watching for his friend and his friend asked him to send him a video of the dog because there was something wrong with the dog. And that video was also on the phone. And in that video, you could clearly hear Maggie, Paul, and Alec's voice. So there were a number of people who got on the stand during the prosecution's case to testify that, yes, indeed, that was Alec's voice in the video. When Alex took the stand, he had to admit that it was his voice in the video. Had he never taken the stand, he wouldn't have had to admit it. Maybe there would have been some reasonable doubt among the jury, like, oh, Maybe that wasn't his voice. I don't know, because they never, during the trial, would have heard his voice if he didn't testify, right? Absolutely. I think that that was a huge, huge, uh, well, everyone that's being questioned that was on the jury says that was the biggest, biggest piece of evidence that was irrefutable because he admitted to it, you know? Right. And then they had at least three witnesses that said that's 100% his voice, 100% his voice. You and know, when I watch, yeah, when I watch some of the trial also, and I look at the Murdoch family in the audience, they, in my opinion, they don't react the way I would expect um, a family to react that just lost their, say, their sister-in-law and, and in uh, Buster's case, his mother. They don't react. They, they're just sort of like, yeah. He did it. That's that's how they sort of react. Do you think that they thought that he did it? I think they probably, you know, did. like his brothers and, and Buster. I mean, I think they all think he's innocent. I don't know. No, I, I mean, I, Maggie's family, I, I, you know, I don't know. If you watched, you could see Buster in the, the sentencing video that we just watched. And he was kind of sitting behind there and he was expressionless. It was odd. Which I think I think really underneath that is they're resigned to the fact that he did it. Hmm. You know, he did it. Duty Ron, thank you so much for the $20 super sticker. Duty Ron says, I'm here to see Melanie. Love you too, Bill. Guys, what about all the people the Murdoch family has put away in prison over the years? That could go against Alex and his safety in prison. He was a solicitor, family members. You're right. A solicitor yeah. general in South Carolina is the equivalent of our district attorney in um, in New York. So yes, they were prosecutors for many, many years. Could he come up against some of the people he put in prison when he goes to prison? Very good point, Ron. Mm -hmm. I just think he, he, yeah. I just think he's such a scammer. He's so smooth. He's just, he's very smart. Before you know it, he'll be telling the warden what to do in the prison uh, by, you know, by just having, the power and knowing the law. And I think he's going to be a thorn in the side of the prison officials. Your thoughts, Melanie? He could have lovers and haters, you know, like people hate lawyers. <laughs> That's a thing too. So yeah, could there be family members um, 
or could there be a prison, prisoners who were put away by part of the Murdoch family or one of his predecessor prosecutors? Sure, that could happen. You know, if, if some people are, you know, hypothesizing that the Murdoch family is like some sort of organized crime syndicate, that there are so many layers to this that we don't even know about yet that maybe somebody's going to get to him in prison, you know? Be interesting. That could be. That could be. Let me play a little bit of this from Law and Crime. Paul, by shooting them to death on their family property back on June 7th, 2021, that is not an easy question to answer. So as we reflect on this trial, we thought, let's revisit the top five major setbacks for the defense. Now, I'll add a caveat. At the time of this recording, we don't know what's going to come out next. So at the time of this recording, let's go over them. And these are the things that are right now not so great for the defense's case. First up, let's start. You know where I'm going to go. The very big one, the kennel video. My opinion, strongest piece of evidence we've seen so far. Now, remember Alex Alibi, okay? So he says that after having dinner with Maggie and Paul on the night of the murders, they went down to the dog kennels while he stayed inside, took a nap, and then went to visit his sick mother. He then returns back to the property around 10 p.m., finds their bodies, calls 911 at around 10 or 6 p.m. So again, he says he didn't go down to the kennels until he found the bodies. But ah, uh, what happened? Well, Paul took a video on his phone. It was a video that was recorded at 8.44 p.m. This is about five or six minutes before when prosecutors say Maggie and Paul were killed. They are basing that off of the fact that the two cell phones basically locked and there was no more phone activity. Well, listen carefully to this video. Get back. Get back. Quit, Cash. you hear Alec Murdoch on that? Because I'll tell you, multiple people who know him well and know his voice well said they are sure it is him. You recognize your dog? I do. You recognize Paul's voice? Yes, sir. You recognize Maggie's voice? Yes, sir. You recognize Alec's voice? Yes, sir. 100%? Yes, sir. Can you point out Alec Murdoch, the person whose voice you recognize in this video in this courtroom, please? Sitting right there in the great jacket. Please let the record reflect he's identified the defendant. Did you recognize any voices on that video? The three voices on that video are the voices of Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch. And how sure are you? How sure are you? I'm 100% sure that's whose voices are on that, the audio there. So that's huge, right? In my opinion, still the strongest piece of evidence. It places him at the scene. Well, put it this way. So, Melanie, that's um, 
Again, That's what we were just talking not, about. Yeah. Right. Not to beat a dead horse, but um, that piece of evidence. And then with witnesses saying, yeah, a hundred percent, that's his voice. I don't even think his his attorneys wanted to challenge that at all because, again, they they had they didn't have a prayer when two people that know him so intimately said, "Yeah, that's his voice." Mm -hmm. You know. So again, the strongest piece of evidence, duty, Ron. Thank you for the ten dollars super sticker. If Alex becomes a thorn in correction official side, they can simply look away and allow. Jailhouse justice to prevail. Yeah, you know, they don't like to do that in prisons, though. You know that. But I, I agree with you. You're right. They absolutely can allow jailhouse justice to prevail. But uh, prisons, uh, they, they're held accountable for that. Well, you, Melanie, you brought it up before. It happened to Epstein, right? Yeah. Uh, cameras were broken. Everybody fell asleep. Nobody was watching him. Barbara Butcher, who was a uh, the former chief of staff of the New York City uh, Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, said on Duty Run's show she felt that Jeffrey Epstein case was an assisted suicide. Uh, pretty much what you just said, mm. you know. Right. But uh, let me play a little bit more of this. Another mind When Simpson recounts a very important conversation she had with Alec Murdoch. He said, B, I need to talk to you. And uh, he said, come here, sit down. So I went in the living room. I sat down and he was pacing back and forth in the in the living room. And he said, I got a bad feeling. He said, I got a bad feeling. He said, something's not right. And then he said, um, he said, well, you know, um, there's a, um, a video. There was a video that was out. I hadn't seen a video. And he said, you remember the shirt I was wearing, that Vinnie Vine shirt? Those were, that's what he said to me. And uh, in my mind, I was saying, I don't remember a Vinnie Vine's shirt. It was the polo shirt, but I didn't mention. He said, well, you know what? I was wearing that shirt. He said, um, you know, in the, um, that day. And still, I, I was just, I didn't say anything, but I was kind of, thrown back because I don't remember that. I don't remember him wearing that shirt that day. I know what he was wearing the day he left the house. And I was basically confused. I didn't really know whether he was trying to get me to say that that shirt was, if I was, if I was to be asked that if that was a shirt he was wearing. So if true, he was very worried about what he was wearing in that Snapchat video. And he was trying to get her to say he was wearing something else. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. Again, another alleged example of him trying to cover his tracks. Your thoughts, Melanie? That was Blanca, the family housekeeper. Um, and she's an honest woman. I think her testimony had a lot to do with his conviction as well. You know, he, uh, I, I don't know at what point in time he had this conversation with her, do you? But, you know, he's clearly, I mean, Vineyard Vines is, I guess, where she was going with that. I don't know what Vinnie Vines is, but I'm assuming it was a Vineyard Vines shirt. Um, he wants her to lie. And as you'll see, as we watch more of this video, the second person that he asked to lie was Shelly, who was his mom's caretaker, about how long he was visiting his mom that night. 
he offers to right. pay for her wedding. You know, it's unbelievable that people that are pathological liars like that, they expect other people to, to lie for them also. And it's, it's really scary that, uh, you know, he was trying to get people to tell his story. And specifically, he didn't want, obviously, to be seen that he changed his clothes, you know. Of course. And, of course, that's what, in fact, occurred. And the clothes disappeared. Yes, of course. And, so you they know, can never that, be tested. That was a big question, too. Oh, where was the, where's the clothing? You know, where's the clothing now? Let me play a little bit more of this on law and crime. He to gain sympathy. He killed his family to stop the inquiries into what was into his life. And boy, oh boy, listen to what we heard. I looked at him and I said, Alec, and I'm sure I said F or H or something. I said, what the, you know, what the, is going on? I need to know what's going on. Because I know about this thing that Lee's called me about, and I need to know if there's something else you've done that involves me that I don't know about. That's a problem for me. What is going on? What does he say? He didn't say anything. Broke down crying. Said he had a drug addiction. Um, and then he admitted he had been stealing money. You know. From who? He, um, from the law firm and from clients. And by the way, the jury is not supposed to consider this in the form of propensity evidence. They're not permitted to say, well, if Alec Murdoch was stealing and cheating and lying, he's a bad guy. And guys like that have to kill their would kill their families. No, 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 no. They're, they're only allowing it in for the sole purpose to show motive and malice, to show that his world was crumbling. He was under the pressure. He killed his family. And if that doesn't sound logical, listen to the CFO of Alec Murdoch's former law firm who confronted him on the day of the killings, hours before Maggie and Paul were killed, about that missing money. I said, I told him, I said, I have reason to believe that you received the fairest money directly to you, and you need to prove to me that you did not. And um, he assured me again that the money was in there. I told him I still needed to see the ledgers or the proof that it was. After the murders happened, was anybody at all concerned about getting the proof for those missing fees after those murders happened at that point in time? We weren't because we were concerned about Alec. Um, he wasn't working a whole lot. He was um, erratic. We knew he was taking pills. Um, we were just worried about his sanity, so we weren't going to go in there and harass him about money when we were worried about his mental state and the fact that this his family had been killed. Or there's Mark Tinsley, the civil lawyer that was representing the Beach family in the boating crash lawsuit. He was pursuing a wrongful death lawsuit against Alec Murdoch. Listen again to the timing. Did that have any effects, that tragedy of their deaths, did that have any effects on your assessment of the boat case and how everything fit together uh, if things were how they initially appeared? Uh, it would have affected I mean, it, it, yes, it did, and it would have it would have ended the case. It would have ended the case against who? Against Alex Murdoch. If Alec is the victim of a vigilante, nobody's going to hold him accountable. Doesn't make any difference what he did, or how clearly what he did contributed. Uh, the case would be over against Alec. Everyone was looking into Alec Murdoch, and what happened when Paul and Maggie died? The inquiries stopped. The lawsuit was put on hold. So if you believe the prosecution's motive that he killed his family to buy himself time to stop all of this, 
it worked in a little bit, did it not? Well, let's close this out with the testimony of Marion Proctor. Melanie, I just wanted to say his, his um, this guy, let's, let's put aside that he killed his wife and his son. Let's focus on the crimes he did before that, which were horrific also. I mean, he's, it's estimated he stole between 8 and $12 million. You have to think about it. How much money was that law firm making that they didn't miss 8 or $12 million? How much money were they making? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, when I started to look into these financial crimes, most of the clients that he stole from were either incapacitated or children. So the money would have been put in some sort of a structured settlement or an annuity. And what he did was, you know, the old shell game. He somehow opened up accounts, pretended that he was the annuity company. You know, he was loaning himself money from their funds. I mean, it was really, really horrific what he did. I mean, like, Stealing money from clients is like the number one thing they teach you, you know, when you're studying for the ethics portion of the bar that is get you disbarred in 30 seconds. How his law firm never knew any of this is so far beyond me that I'm, I just I don't know how it went on for so long. Then Melanie, then maybe counting anything like it's just it's very bizarre. But maybe then you got to think that maybe that they were dirty, too. And they were playing you know, dirty and there was so I much. I don't know. I feel like he was moving that money and they might not have known about it because the, he was in cahoots with, you know, the COO of Palmetto Bank, that Russell, uh, Russell Lafitte, is that his name? Lafitte, Who was yeah, convicted. Um, the tentacles of this whole thing run very deep. And, and I don't know that his firm was involved. Should they, did they know or should have known? Yeah, they should have known. Unbelievable. You know, I just want to mention something quick. The other night we said, we all know that Paul Murdoch, which seemed to have started this uh, confluence of, of, of bad things happening. Well, there was some bad things that happened before it, but he was operating the boat intoxicated when Mallory Beach was, was killed in 2019. Approximately, approximately a year later, maybe a little more than that, he was driving a truck pulling a boat and he was intoxicated and he flipped the truck over and he was with his girlfriend. Um, her Morgan. name is uh, Morgan Dowdy. Mm -hmm. He was with her. She gets out of the truck and like calls 911. He right away calls Alec, his mom and his, and his grandfather to the scene. And they, of course, Randolph Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch and Alec, they show up on the scene and the first thing they start doing is chucking all the beer cans and he had, I don't know how many guns he had inside that car. This is according to the documentary. They start throwing out all the beer cans and the guns inside the car and basically chastised Morgan for calling 911. Like, no, this is the Murdoch fix-it team. Mm -hmm. So when I realized that that occurred a year after the boating accident, I was like, this dude did not learn his lesson. He killed somebody. And he's still driving drunk with guns in the car, flipping a car over. I mean, what does that say about him? It, it, it's inexplicable. It's um, the parenting is a little bit in question, wouldn't you say? I mean, where 
like we talked about the other night, these kids had no ramifications for their behavior. They were always bailed out by their parents. They were enabled by their parents. There's videos of uh, the parents are, were, you know, serving these kids alcohol long before they were 21 or even 18. And there's videos of it. You know, they were very permissive in their parenting. And, you know, there's been some testimony that the parents were never even really around, but they were around when it came to cleaning up all the messes and getting the kids out of, you know, any sort of legal trouble. Mind boggling. You know, and, and even Melanie, when we go back to the actual boating accident in 2019, I believe it was February 2019, um, you know, Alec Murdoch, of course, shows up on the scene and shows up in the hospital and immediately starts saying he's the attorney for everyone that's on the boat so that they won't talk to the police and then tries to pin dry, the operation of the boat on the, who is the uh, the young man Connor, um, Connor Cook Friend Connor yep tries to pin it on him and actually even tells Connor's father that I'm going to take care of him I'm going to represent him tries to convince him that your son was dry, operating the boat luckily all the passengers on the boat said no that's not true Paul was operating the boat. Didn't Connor say also at the scene to law enforcement, like, oh, do you know who that is? You know what his last name is? Murdoch. Yeah. Good luck. Good no, luck. That wasn't Connor. That, that was his, that was his, his cousin. Friend? His cousin Anthony said oh. that. Anthony's girlfriend friends at the scene, Mallory right? Beach was killed. So he understood, you know, the fixits that were going to, it was going to be attempted to happen at that scene. So I just wanted to mention that, and, and we're um, deep into the show. I want to get a little bit into the Hakeem Pinckney case. And I know you know a little bit about this. I want the audience to know how far this goes back and just the level of corruption and dirt baggishness. I can't even use a better word than that, of mm -hmm. Alec Murdoch and that banker Lafitte. You want to give us a synopsis on that, uh, Melanie? Yeah, I mean, we don't have much time. So briefly, um, Hakeem Pinckney and his family were involved in a car accident in, I believe it was 2009. Um, and Hakeem, as a result of this car accident, it was a, a product liability case against the Michelin who had, who had made the tires. And the theory was that there was a tire tread separation, which caused the car to go off the road, roll over. And Hakeem, uh, who was a passenger in the car, was rendered a quadriplegic because of the accident which means basically you can't move anything from the neck down. So he sustained devastating injuries. Um, he was also deaf, I think, before the accident. I don't think he was rendered deaf as um, a result of the accident. But in any event, these were catastrophic injuries. This was one of the cases I was telling you about where Hakeem Pinckney did not actually live in Ham Hampton County because he was put into a nursing home where they could care for him because he needed around-the-clock care. And he was only, I think, 19 years old when the car accident happened. But they filed that lawsuit in Hampton County because, like we said before, very generous county, very big verdicts. Murdoch's had a lot of influence with cases there. Um, he sent, Hakeem's mom was driving the car. So Alex sent uh, the mom to his friend, Corey Fleming, who's an attorney, because it would be a conflict for Alec to represent a passenger in the car and the driver in the car because the driver is also sued automatically in a car accident if you're a passenger. And the case, Hakeem died in 2011. The case settled four days before he died. And after he died, Alec and I think the bank was also involved at this point. They all still represented that he was alive. And they got the settlement money 
And this was just some of the money that Alex stole um, during the course of his 99 other financial crimes. You know, and I understand, Melly, in this case, that uh, one of the reasons they wanted to pretend that he was alive was because the insurance company would pay more money because he needed 24-7 care. Lifetime and if care. he lived, right, if he lived for years, that could be millions and millions of dollars. Right. So just think of how horrific and dirty that is to pretend someone's alive that's dead from a vehicle accident. It's, it's, just, it's just totally horrific. Horrifying. And the banker also stole money from the clients. Well, and, and they not would a little loan bit of themselves money. money and they would, you know, use the, the settlement money as collateral for loans for themselves. It was such a shell game, like a Ponzi scheme. Like he would steal money from one client. And then when that client, you know, found out or wanted their money, he would take another client's money to pay them back. And it just snowballed into this enormous thing that became, I mean, imagine how much it was weighing on him at the time of these murders because he was about to be found out. He had been confronted that day by the bookkeeper in his office. And it all was starting to unravel. And there's nothing a narcissist like him hates more than losing control. But Melanie, the other thing was, is that the lawsuit, again, let's get back to Hampton County, mm -hmm. was filed in Hampton County. Right. And Hakeem Pinckney didn't live in Hampton County anymore. He lived in the nursing home, which was several hours outside of Hampton County. And Correct. they never used that address, which was totally, from what I understand, a felony for an attorney to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. and in addition to that, they had a friendly court clerk and judge at the, in Hampton County mm -hmm. that didn't even check the paperwork. They submitted false paperwork for this case. It was unbelievable. Everywhere you turned, there was more corruption. A lot of sloppy stuff went on here. Absolutely. A lot of sloppy stuff. Disgusting, disgusting. Lula Morocco, thank you for the $20 super sticker. Folks, if you're looking for a great defense attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718-514-3855 or email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. He has a website, jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray is a huge, huge supporter of Police Off the Cuff, and he's been he's been with us from the from the very beginning. The trials and the tribulations in this podcast game. Joe's been with us and he's supported us, and we really appreciate him. So that that I think, Melanie, gives an example of here's a quadriplegic. Mm -hmm. Can you get any lower than stealing money from a quadriplegic? And from his family that they, I don't even know if they ever saw any of this money. He was awarded oh, a million I, I do, dollars. You know, I do want to say that all the clients whose money that he stole have been paid back. Everyone has been made whole. And then some. By the no firm. Kidding. The firm, there were one of the partners um, testified that they had to take out a lot of loans. And several of the partners of the firm had to donate millions of their own dollars to pay back all of these clients. So they have all been made whole which is well, another reason why these financial crimes may not go to trial. Well, there was just a, um, the, uh, a report today that Moselle, the, uh, the Murdoch, huge estate has been sold. Mm -hmm. 
but only well let me let me, i'll play the short video families now in this hunting property will soon have a new owner it's where alec murdoch shot and killed his wife maggie and his son paul in june of 2021 and now it's under contract fox guys grace runkle spoke with people close to the deal she's live now with the next steps grace well, I spoke with an attorney working closely on the sale of Moselle, and he says as the deal stands now, the property will sell for about $3.7 million. And because of all the civil cases against Murdoch, this sale is pretty complicated. All that money has to be divvied up. I'm told that a deal has been worked out between all of the parties involved, and here's what the breakdown is according to court documents. $290,000 will go to cover legal fees. Buster, Murdoch's surviving son, will get $530,000. $275,000 will go to the co-receivers. and. Sorry, guys. It's uh... So you see on the screen what's going to, 100000 for Connor Cook, and the remainder goes to the attorney, uh, Mark, Mark Kinsley. Kinsley who, for the Kinsley, Mallory Beach case. Right, who, who represented uh, right. these folks in the case. I mean, it's just such a... Now it's going to, so it's just such a horrific situation. I mean, you know, here's people, I guess it's the great American story of this rich, rich family. And what went bad? What went so wrong that this prominent attorney from a family of attorneys, a most prominent family probably in Hampton County, went this bad that he turns and kills his wife and his son, his young son, of course, the one who was killed by him, Paul, kills a young 19-year-old girl in a boating accident drunk. His son, uh, Buster, recently gets kicked out of law school. There's, there's all kinds of bad signs, bad omens with this family, not just, um, of course, the, these horrific murders. Yeah, absolute power corrupts absolutely <laughs> i couldn't have said it better myself melanie you're so you're so 100 right it's you know we opened up the show talking about um stephen smith case and uh now hopefully the family will get justice there uh, the body's going to be exhumed in july uh we gotta we gotta know that um south carolina law enforcement division has more information on this than they've let out, than they've let on. We're hoping that it leads to an arrest and a conviction and closure for this family, but we don't know. And we don't know a lot of the facts. I just want to mention two um, documentarians, I guess you could call them, from that area in, in South Carolina. And one of them who was on our show over a year ago, Eric Allen, fantastic um, photographer, uh, and cinematographer. The guy, guy's, guy's great. He has some fantastic... And the other one, of course, is uh, Mandy Matney, who with, with Fitz TV. She's mm -hmm. done an incredible job on this case. And uh, I believe Eric Allen was was on the um, the Netflix documentary and just a uh, tremendous, tremendous talent, as is um, Mandy Matney. And we can't say enough. I just wanted to list them as having great mm -hmm. documentaries as per yeah. this and, case. And podcast too, because a lot of people in the chat were pointing out the Mandy Matney's podcast, which I think she did something like eight, over 80 episodes. I mean, she's been 
on top of the Murdochs for years. And she lives, you know, nearby and she gets these incredible interviews with so many people that are really close to the story. And her reporting on this has really been top notch. Yeah, and I just wanted she has to a show. I think that's going to come out on Hulu. So good for her. Yeah, I just wanted to mention because that's uh, it's kept everyone throughout this country. Their their boots on the ground and also very brave of her mm -hmm. to report against this most powerful family in, in this area of Hampton County, South Carolina. It's uh, very brave of her. Yeah. Melanie, we're at an hour and 30-something minutes. I'm going to go. Wow, that your, went fast, huh? It went, it went really fast. I hope that um, the audience enjoyed it as much as we did. I, I love having you on the show. You're a wealth full of knowledge, and uh, I love your smooth delivery, too. It's, oh, you okay. deliver it uh, very very succinctly, and uh, I, I think you're, you're going to be a star in this podcast business. Oh, so final thanks. thoughts, Melanie. Stay tuned. I think there's just so much more. We covered so much tonight. It's hard to have any final thoughts because I think I've really said it all, but I think there's just so much more to come and we'll be here to talk to you about it and um, put your questions in the chat. Absolutely. And thanks for being so loyal, everyone. And also hit the like button because the like button is very important. Not just the subscribe, but the like is very important. That's what built that's up. For, anyway. That's for sure. And Schmitty, thank you so much for the $15 super chat. Very much appreciated. All of our fans, Schmitty. $15 for a night at the casino with duty run so you can settle your bets or just pay this to duty run. He's not the only one keeping score. Thank you, Schmitty. Very much appreciated. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Have a great St. Patty's Day. God bless, and, and we'll see you very, very soon. Thanks. One episode, just